Let's talk about the good news first. The stigma associated with mental health, with talking about it, understanding it, and asking for help when we need it has started to fall away. It isn't gone by any means, but the door is definitely ajar. Yet in moments of crisis, it is still hard to know where to turn to get help for yourself or for a loved one in the most urgent of times. And now for more good news. Allen County, Indiana is rich in resources for those seeking help for themselves, their families, or their friends. I'm John McGauley, and on this episode of In Session, we're talking about Allen Superior Court's role in crisis intervention and the mental health resources waiting to help. On the program today, Judge Andrew Williams, Allen Superior Court's mental health judge, Lieutenant Tony Mays of the Fort Wayne Police Department, and Dr. Matthew Runyon of Parkview Behavioral Health. Everyone, welcome to In Session. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's start out before we, we get into what I know is going to be a very valuable conversation. Maybe brief introductions, just what brings all of you to a discussion of mental health. Let's start with Dr. Runyon. So I'm Matthew Runyon. I'm a psychiatrist. I work at Parkview Behavioral Health. I run the inpatient adult unit. So my day job is seeing patients with depression, suicidal thoughts, psychosis, mania, drugs, overdose, withdrawal, other things such as that. I also oversee some of the administrative side of things and kind of handle a lot of the liaison back and forth with the courts, with Fort Wayne Police Department. Very familiar with both the mental health aspect as well as the judicial aspect of psychiatric treatment. Interesting. Lieutenant Mays. Uh, Lieutenant Tony Mays uh, with the Fort Wayne Police Department. I am, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, the CIT coordinator. I have been uh, with the crisis intervention team as a concept since we started back August of 2000. So I've got over 22 years in this portion of, of the mental health area. And I currently oversee all of the officers, review the reports, track what's going on, and try to answer the questions that our field officers have when they're running into issues uh, dealing with consumers out in the public. Judge Williams. My name is Andrew Williams, and I'm the mental health judge for Allen County. In addition to having a, uh, a civil docket, um, I am responsible for all the civil commitment hearings. I'm also uh, responsible for making determinations regarding uh, emergency detention orders, which means that I'm on call 24 hours a day, seven <laughs> days a week. And uh, I also lead the Allen County Mental Health Task Force. What will become evident here uh, as, as the podcast goes on is that this is a big part of what you do. You have a docket in addition to mental health cases, so it's pretty safe to assume that mental health is, is near and dear to your heart. What brings you to the topic? What makes you want to do this? You're absolutely right. I mean, mental health is very important to me. And, and the primary reason that um, I've been interested in, in this for so many years, by the way, I started off as a volunteer attorney in the mental health hearings in 2005. So I've, I've been doing it for a while and familiar with it. Um, but what really prompted me to get involved was I, I believe that, that mental illness touches everybody in one way or another. I think that uh, whether it's a, a family member or a friend, I think all of us know someone who has at one point in time been in the middle of a mental health crisis, whether that resulted in, in any kind of judicial involvement or inpatient care, you know, I, don't, I don't know. But for me personally, um, I had a family member who, um, who had a mental health crisis and she, um, she was treated, she was on medications and was doing pretty well. And like so many people, when someone suffers from a mental illness, they get to a point where they start feeling better 
they think they're better, they stop taking their medications, mm -hmm. and then they decompensate and they go back through the process again. And that's exactly what happened to her. When we first realized that, that she had a mental illness, we all acknowledged that it had taken us quite a while to, to recognize it. Once we did recognize it and were able to help her get treatment, I can say that today she's, you would have no idea that, that she suffered from a mental illness. She, she, she takes her medications and the medications have helped her tremendously, along with um, other uh, counseling that she's received. Let's cut right to the chase here. The, the most surprising thing that I have heard in a long time, and part of this you told me just as we were getting ready to do this show, is the extent to which Allen Superior Court has a role in making sure that people in mental health crises get help. Almost 2,000 times a year, cases are filed in front of you seeking commitments for people urgently in need of help. Talk a little bit about those cases and how a mental health crisis winds up in front of a judge. The way that these usually uh, become part of uh, the judicial system is early on uh, when a person is taken to one of our, our hospitals here in Allen County and the doctor in the, uh, in the emergency department makes a determination that this is someone who needs an evaluation and it isn't something that can be done very quickly, they feel that there needs to be more time for it, they'll call me and request a, an emergency detention order. An emergency detention order is valid for up to, to seven hours, which means that during that time period, if it's granted, a doctor can evaluate the patient and make sure that the patient is, is stable and able to leave the hospital. In the event that 72 hours isn't enough time to, to get the patient stable and, and get them released without patient services, a petition can be filed for an involuntary commitment. And uh, when a when a petition for involuntary commitment has been filed, we have a hearing, and it's a hearing that's similar to probably what everybody would think of. When they think of court hearings, you have an attorney who's representing uh, each side, and in these cases, there's a public defender that's assigned to the patient to represent the patient's interests, and I make a determination as to whether there's clear and convincing evidence that the patient is mentally ill and either is dangerous to himself or herself or others, or is gravely disabled, and when that determination is made, the patient then, depending upon what type of commitment it is, if it's a, a temporary commitment, they could be um, under care for a period of, of not more than 90 days. During that time period, the, the goal and focus is first to get the person stabilized so they can be released back into the community, back to home, and, and given outpatient services. These cases come to the surface, the urgency of need. This isn't an eight-to-five job. You all probably work 24 hours a day. You're, you're probably on call 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Somebody is. What, Somebody is. Yeah. When do these cases happen? Is there a particular trigger? I mean, Judge Williams has told me that he gets calls at 2 o'clock in the morning. When does this happen? When does the, the absolutely urgent need for help it, pop up? It's happening right now. Actually, I checked the emergency room before I left here. There were seven people waiting psychiatric interviews at the Randalia ER alone. So you might get some calls later. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> we'll <laughs> from our staff. So uh, honestly, it starts with Lieutenant Mays' team here, mm -hmm. honestly. And I, I can't say all of the patients who get detained, potentially committed, come in through police. And not everybody who comes in through police ends up getting detained. But I would say there's a high correlation between police involvement and detentions. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to start with kind of what CIT is, for those who may not be familiar with it. But 
If we could, before we do that, sure. um, if we could just talk a little bit about detention, what exactly yeah. that means. Because yeah. I think there's a fear that when somebody becomes a part of the mental health system that they're going to the jail. <laughs> and and some people feel when they wake up at uh, behavioral health institutes, they may be incarcerated as the doors are locked, but that's not the goal. So an emergency detention is specifically just a detention. And that's something we have to clarify with both patients and families is that just because they are basically mandated to a hospital does not mandate treatment. It's a mandated detention. I cannot force them to take medications if they say, no, I don't want to take anything. I can't force them to go to groups. I can't force them to talk to me, but I can force them to not leave. And so if patients are willing, they have insight, yes, I have an issue. Typically, we try to point out the situation that led us to a hospitalization that requires a judge's intervention, potentially police, and we can actually work with them in order to try to work on the issue. However, the detention order does not mandate treatment. Now, the commitment where Judge Williams was discussing us in court, that is basically us removing their constitutional right to say, no, I do not want that treatment. And we don't take that lightly. I grew up, my brother's a police officer, my dad's a police officer, so I grew up with the legal system from a, a lawmaker perspective, and I don't take that lightly. And the ones that we do bring to court, we have very strong evidence that we have tried to work with them. We have tried to let them do things their way or unable to do so with multiple admissions or their plan is simply not going to work. So with those detentions, a good 90% of them <coughs> do not turn into commitments. And uh, people talk about, you know, they've been committed to a psychiatric hospital. They're usually talking about a detention. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just, again, a detention. A commitment is a much higher standard. And again, it's a treatment order as opposed to a detention order. You know, I would I would emphasize that the purpose of all of this is not punishment. Mm -hmm. It's Correct. never it's never punishment when we're talking about the civil commitments. That's not the goal. The goal is to get folks to a position to where they're stable, they can be released, and they can benefit from outpatient services. Yeah. One thing we do usually have to discuss with families, especially if somebody is still having maybe some symptoms, but not to the criteria that I could actually file a commitment. It, it's not illegal to have psychosis. You know, you can hear voices and that doesn't mean I can force you to take medications. You can still take care of yourself. You're not gravely disabled or dangerous. My hands are legally tied. I may try to predict the future and say, I don't know if this is going to go well, but that's not enough to meet a legal standard. And so we often have to talk with families that when a detention is expiring, I only have three choices. Either the patient signs in and they want to stay in the hospital, in which case we're happy to do so. We file a petition with the court if they meet that criteria, or I have to discharge them home. Those are the only three options I have. And so we are essentially stuck in some situations that if they don't meet criteria, they're not willing to stay, I, I don't have any other options. And so we, we do our absolute best to avoid those. It's very frustrating for both us and for families. But again, I have a legal standard we have to meet in order mm -hmm. to take them to court. And we don't hold that lightly in regards to, ah, we'll just take them to court. No, if, if it doesn't meet the standard, we're not approaching Judge Williams and saying, hey, can you help us? Can you look at this case? If it doesn't meet standards, we don't file it. And we'll often talk with family about if we're attempting an outpatient, they're not signing in, the detention is expiring, maybe they're still not doing well, or we foresee some significant issues with returning to an environment that maybe brought them here or not really having the greatest of plans on discharge. Mm -hmm. We try to help with that. But if we foresee that, we will often talk with the families if they're present or friends or even amongst ourselves about, okay, if this doesn't go well, hopefully we can get them back in the system. And the next time, if it's in a short period of time, we probably will be going for a commitment. We're documenting that. Mm -hmm. But in that first episode, 
you know, the way that it, it is essentially set up is that we have to allow them to attempt things. As long as they're not meeting that criteria, we have to allow them to attempt their own treatment until we can say, you no longer get to make that choice. Dr. Ren, you touched on something that I think is a great follow-up for Lieutenant Mays. These calls for help that result in civil commitments very rarely come from the patient, I'm sure. They are coming from family members or friends or co-workers. For families that find themselves in the midst of a mental health crisis, I'm sure that calling 911 can be a scary proposition, but the Fort Wayne PD has invested very heavily in training for the days when those calls mm-hmm. come. Talk to me about crisis intervention training and what people can expect to experience when they call for help. Well, I want to kind of go back to yeah. how we became, you know, so people understand that when we started this back in late 98 and into 99, Fort Wayne and Allen County both had had some tragic situations with mentally ill individuals. And that caused us to kind of reevaluate what we're doing, how we're doing it, and where can we be better at it. And like it, just about anything else in law enforcement, things are ever evolving. There's always a different look to things. We can always maybe reevaluate what we're doing or how we're doing it. So we, we took a look at this and families who have been long-term with mentally ill family members, there's a thing called the Memphis model for crisis intervention. We we went down and we saw what, what they were doing and kind of based what Fort Wayne was going to do with what resources we had here. And when we first started, there was a lot of, it'll never work up here because you've got too many stakeholders, basically. We had Park Center, we had Parkview, we had Lutheran, we had St. Joe, before St. Joe Hospital was under the Lutheran umbrella. So we had all of these entities going, yeah, we want to help, we want to help, we want to help. The Memphis model had a singular facility to take mentally ill individuals to. So it's like, you know, that made it easy. You got a one-stop shop, here we go. They said it would never work. We worked diligently with all of our all of our stakeholders to say, how are we going to do this? How can we work with you and get this? Then we take the training. Once we once we built that confidence that, that we, we all want to work together kind of thing, we took that training and uh, initially we looked for volunteers within the department. Uh, we wanted officers to have uh, at least five years on. We looked at backgrounds, their evaluations, uh, everything, and we kind of cherry picked the officers who said, "Yep, I want to be. I want to do this." When I came on, it, all we had available to us was a 72-hour process, and that would take an officer out of service for sometimes four, six hours, because we had to find a judge, we had to find a doctor willing to sign the order, and we had to have a place to take that individual. And sometimes shuffling the patients or the consumers um, around in order to have an open bed space. And, you know, like Dr. Runyon talked about, is there a complication of releasing that individual back into the environment they just came from, and is that going to be a trigger? Okay, imagine us sitting there for four, five, or six hours in that environment that spiked the episode that we're in. So, you know, we had all of that, and then when, when crisis intervention comes in and we get this training and we build this rapport, we are looking at the de-escalation techniques so that we're able to talk off, talk the, the consumers down um, instead of just rushing in there, going hands-on, putting them in cuffs, dragging them out, putting them in a car. That's a misconception. If anybody thinks that's what we're doing, that is not what we're doing. I will I will tell folks, and and it's part of the approach of how we when we when we do take one into custody for the purposes of the immediate detention order, we will tell them, "I'm going to put you in handcuffs. You're going to ride in the back of a car, of the squad car. You are not going to jail." Because we learned early on, if we lie to these individuals, they aren't going to trust us. And trust is a 
big portion of what we have to establish. So we have the de-escalation techniques. We have had various doctors in the psychiatric field come in um, over the years and help us better understand mental illness as a whole. My officers are not out there diagnosing anybody. We may use some of the diagnosis that we are told from other family members if they're paranoid schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever. That's information that we are getting from family members, sometimes from the mentally ill individual themselves. If they're saying, I know I need help, I'm this, you know, my meds aren't working, please get me some help, they'll call us sometimes. But we document what we see based on you know the training that we've got. Like I said, the, the, the doctors come in and help us better understand that, the, the mental health aspect. We have the, the de-escalation techniques. We have uh, different approaches of taking someone into custody. Like I said, we're not rushing up and grabbing a hold of them. It's, it's our approach. And we're keeping officers' safety in mind as well as the, the safety of the mentally ill individual. I can tell you that where we land basically in use of force in dealing with mentally ill individuals when we get called, we might have one or two documented use of force reports where it's, it's above and beyond going up and uh, taking them by the arm and escorting them and putting them into handcuffs. And we average over probably 100 contacts a month. So when we're like 1% or lower in use of force, I think that speaks loudly to, to, to the training that the officers get. They do scenarios. We have had folks coming in from Parkview Behavioral, from Park Center, and they will, uh, and their staff will have reenacted some of the incidents that they are aware of and watch our officers, how they interject with it. So it originally started as a week-long 40-hour course. We have, with with resources and everything, we, we've kind of whittled that down to somewhat, but the core elements of the CIT training from the very beginning have, all, have always been there. So I guess the important thing that you know, I want the, the, the public to understand is when it used to be we were the first people called and the last one you wanted on your doorstep, it's kind of reversed. They know that when they are calling, we will even have, have them specifically say, I need my CIT officer. I need a CIT officer. We have been in the public eye long enough that they know we are out there and, they're start, they, and they ask for us. And that's the message that folks need to hear when, when they've got somebody in crisis in their family is if you call 911, the police department is trained. They know what they're doing. They're familiar with this, and they're ready to help. And it's become part of our academy criteria. When, when I took over as the coordinator for the department, my first thing was I wanted it part of the academy curriculum. To think that a, an officer with, okay, we got to wait till you have five years on. I'm sorry to me, we get an officer who's, who comes off of their six-month probation. It's their first day out solo. They may get a call involving a mentally ill individual. Why are we not making sure they have that training? So that's become part of the academy curriculum since I took over. Good news. I am sure that all of you have an opinion on the next question. So I'm opening it up to everybody. The number of mental health cases coming into the courts, and I'm sure into all of your offices and your professional lives through various means, have gone up dramatically in recent years. It has touched my family in 2022 for the first time ever. The numbers are really staggering. I mentioned earlier 2,000 cases uh, in Judge Williams's court last year, up from 800 seven or eight years ago. What is driving that increase? 
Wow. Dr. Runyon? <laughs> it's not, it's not wow. hard to guess. <laughs> I, I could talk about this for a while. Um, you know, in short, part of the benefit of decreasing stigma is increasing awareness and increasing conversation, which brings more of it to the surface. And unfortunately, the curve of conversation and requesting help has exceeded the available resources that provide that help right away. Mm-hmm we're chasing it and it's it's a good thing that we are having more conversation that people are more alert more aware we are working on resources and especially outpatient resources where inpatient in a hospital isn't necessarily the only option we have that's part of it another part social isolation covid's a big hot topic button but you know there's tons of studies showing decreased social interactions and skills education levels interpersonal communication with children as well as adults i talk to people who come in the hospital hey what's going on i can't handle being in my house anymore you know Mm -hmm. i'm freaked out i'm gonna catch covid i you know i i'm tired of doing everything on zoom it's just been so depressing i'm not eating i mean so i'm not blaming covid but the the kind of the fallout from that definitely wasn't helpful drugs and alcohol are massive probably close to 50% of those emergency detentions are involved with drugs or alcohol. And that might be a low ball number, but that is significant. We talk about the opiate crisis and it's bad and fentanyl is definitively killing people, but alcohol is still the most common reason for people to be dead at an early age from a substance abuse. Amphetamines are the most likely reason somebody gets admitted to the psych hospital. It used to be, I would say back in 2018, I would get one a week of somebody who's using meth who is psychotic. And now I get one or two a day. And so those increases, so we have some of the substance abuse, we have some lack of resources. So now our chronically mentally ill patients, you know, more who have like long-term schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that. For example, during COVID, they shut down the bus system. If you don't have a car, how do you get your meds? How do you get your appointments? Because we hadn't set up virtual visits yet. And so I got flooded with people who were getting hospitalized that had been stable, had been doing well, but all of a sudden the support system disappeared through no penalty or punishment. It was just, oh, these are reactions. And a lot of people haven't found stability since then, at least from my, my conversations with even staff members, but especially with patients. There's still a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. You know, election season always brings up interesting feelings. And I have people who come in that are just very fearful with those. So I think there's not one thing. Increased awareness, lots of more drugs and alcohol, more social isolation. Those are just a few examples, but I'm going to cede the floor to these other gentlemen because I could keep going for days. <laughs> Judge Williams, you, you see so many cases, you, you talk to so many doctors and so many of the patients. What's bringing them in front of you? You know, I think that, I think Dr. Runyon's absolutely right with some of the things that he has said. You know, when it comes to to alcohol and and drug use, I think that kind of begs the question, is the person using drugs and alcohol, and is that causing the mental illness, or is the person using the drugs and alcohol to treat their mental illness, to Mm -hmm. to self-medicate? And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. It's probably both. But we definitely have seen seen an increase in folks that are coming into ERs and that the police are are dealing with who are using meth and fentanyl. It, it, it's unbelievable how much of that uh, is actually occurring. One thing that, that I think an, another possible explanation too for just Allen County, why we, we've seen an increase is because I, I believe that Allen County is recognized in this region as a, a leader in, in mental health treatment. We have resources that the smaller neighboring counties do not have. And I think that oftentimes they take advantage of that in a good way. They're taking advantage of the fact that they have a neighboring county that is in a good position to provide help to people that desperately need it. And we see a lot of folks from, from other counties. 
And mm-hmm. just to piggyback on that real quick, Parkview Behavioral Health is Parkview's inpatient psychiatric unit. It's here in Allen County. We have 72 adult beds, 32 youth beds, 16 geriatric beds, and a 32-bed addiction residential center. That's all in Allen County. We don't have anything outside of Allen County, but we have emergency rooms in, say, Whitley, Warsaw, Wabash, LaGrange. And so most of those patients end up coming here to Fort Wayne for the mental health treatment because we don't have the resources in those communities, as Mm -hmm. Judge Williams was saying. Your region's probably... 10 or 15 or 20 counties. Yeah, we have a very mm-hmm. long reach. And that's for adults. That's our reach. For youth, we'll get calls from Bloomington, Toledo. We trade patients with places in Michigan. I'm trying to think, Gary, Indiana, South Bend. We, we frequently will be calling South Bend for, if we're full on our youth unit and we have kids who need beds, we'll be calling South Bend, Toledo, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Bloomington to see if we can get youth beds because there's an even bigger shortage for youth. So yeah, the, the reach is significant. And I think that's very important that we have the resources here. As much as we say, as, as I just said, we don't have enough resources, we have more than they do. People are going to think I was really clever to drop in the sound of a siren when you were doing <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to? I think it, it's kind of a culmination of everything that's been said. We do find those individuals, they don't like the side effects of the medication they were on. And some of the side effects are, you know, for some individuals are relatively unpleasant. Extremely. <laughs> Extremely unpleasant. And, and, and like uh, Judge Williams said, you know, they start feeling better, they quit taking it, then they can't get back on it because they are non-compliant with seeing their provider, with taking their meds, and then they start maybe experimenting with self-medication. And if, and if something starts to feel better a little bit, maybe something more, a little more of that will make me feel even better. And then we start running into the addiction issues, and it's kind of a chicken and an egg kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, where did this come into? And I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. It, it, it does become complicated. And so, especially if you've got somebody who's mentally ill and addicted to try and fix one and wean them off of something, but you know you got to give them something to replace what they were self-medicating with. I don't envy Dr. Runyon for any of that's that. Where, that's where we come in. We, yeah. We, we Bring will, them to me. I think our thing is we kind of see you know, around Christmas time, isolated individuals, even at Christmas, even if they're not necessarily stuck at home, but they are here and family has moved away. So you'll get that seasonal depression, I think is truly a real thing. We also will see a spike after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much right after Christmas, but usually like around February, when if they, if financial issues, maybe they overspent at Christmas kind of thing, and now the bills are starting to roll in. So you've got this, you know, if they were already dealing with mental health demons that, you know, now we've got the anxiety of, you know, I overspend, I've got these charge cards, or it creates family issues and it brings out things. So it's, I think it, in, in Allen County, having the resources that we have, it has drawn people here. And we've got, as minority communities continue to come in to our area, we're getting brand new people. The Burmese population, I think we're starting to see more as as they're brought in, we're starting to see more people that we had never seen before with mental health issues. Just to backtrack for a second, Dr. Runyon just touched on juveniles in need of mental health care and in crisis. The numbers that we've been talking about are purely adults who require an involuntary commitment. That doesn't even start to touch on the numbers overall in the community, including juveniles, and that number in itself is extraordinary right now. And there's a large population that is also being excluded from the adult population, and that's the jail. 
we needing to mention that there's a large percentage of people incarcerated that have mental health issues. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be incarcerated. That's not my position. But that is also a very large percentage of people who are currently in the legal system. Um, and actually, literally, as we were sitting here, I got a text message from one of my directors stating that she wants me to give her a call about transferring a patient from the jail to PBH like, just now. <laughs> so... The youth, it's interesting you mentioned about Christmas because usually we can watch our youth numbers adjust with holidays and report cards. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. during, exactly. during the holiday season, usually like say pre-COVID, I think off the top of my head, we'd be in the single digits for our youth unit with Christmas, Thanksgiving. You know, we'd have five, maybe six kids in the hospital um, and our staff do a phenomenal job of trying to make Christmas or a holiday. You know, they actually have trick-or-treating down the hallways on Halloween. They do, they do gift giving on Christmas. So they, they try to make it special but we've been, usually you'd see a dip around holidays and then around report cards. We could tell when Fort Wayne community came out and North and Southwest came out because we'd see a spike because you got bad grades, consequences happened, statements or behaviors are made. Graduation. Graduation. Yeah. And when the families think that their kids are going to graduate and the kids don't know how to tell their fa their parents that they're not. Yes. So we, we used to see spikes around then and we're still seeing spikes, but we're not seeing the lulls. Christmas this year, we had 23 kids in the hospital. So instead of being five to six, we are at 23. So we're seeing a massive increase in our child and youth inpatient services. Mm. For Judge Williams, in perhaps your role on the Mental Health Task Force, a couple of years ago, the Federal Communications Commission created a three-digit number for people in mental health or suicide crisis situations, something easy to remember like 911. Tell us about 988 and when it's coming to our community, if it hasn't already. 988, the 988 number is similar to 911. The, the idea behind it is that instead of the, the police fielding calls for folks that are calling 911 that really are, are, are in the middle of a mental health crisis, that instead mental health providers can send mobile units to the homes and meet the folks right there instead of having uh, police involvement. And as of right now, the 988 number isn't, it isn't where it's, it's going to be in the future. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. And, and frankly, um, one of the huge benefits, I think, of COVID in terms of mental illnesses, there's been a focus on it and there's a lot more money available for addressing mental illness. And the 988 system uh, is going to benefit from the, the additional funds that are available. There's a lot of, of talk about that. And I, I know that Dr. Runyon, that, that Parkview has mobile units and, and they're they're going to be an integral part of, of all of this. So you might be able to add something to, to what I just said. I I know they're looking, and I don't know the number of units that they have specified for that off the top of my head, but they have multiple units they're already using, both in education as well as suicide prevention and follow-ups. And that's outside of Park Center, which has multiple teams that work with highly acute and chronic mentally ill folks. But Parkview is wanting to make sure that that is part of the response and coordinating that with Fort Wayne Police Department, because some of those calls are for mental health, and sometimes it's perfectly safe for mental health professionals to show up, and sometimes it may not be. And so mm -hmm. that that's a very important collaboration that I know other cities have been able to pull off. And so it's it's possible to do. I know Indianapolis has a couple groups like that where it's kind of a, a tag team approach between Metro PD as well as either Eskenazi or Midtown Mental Health actually presenting on the scene at the same time in certain situations or certain houses or certain calls to make sure that there's a safety component, but also a support component. And they work together on almost all of those calls. So it's, it's very collaborative. I think that's the ultimate goal. Maybe this is also a question for you, Dr. Renya, kind of feeding off 
off of that. We've talked a lot about the mechanisms of mental health and how mental health cases wind up in the courts. Many of these come back to a family member who has put their hand up in the air and said, my loved one is in trouble. How easy is it to know if someone's in crisis? When should somebody absolutely say it's time to find this person help? You know, case by case, I can sit down and be like, right there. That's where you should have done it. Yep. Um, after the fact. It's really easy after the fact. What I try to tell people is it, it depends on function. And, and that's what I use for diagnostics as well. Criteria, but all of them also depend on how is somebody functioning. Is this a functional depression in terms of, yeah, you're depressed, but you're still able to go to work. You're still able to take care of your family. This is more of an outpatient kind of, you know, are we doing therapy, medications, et cetera. Same thing with schizophrenia, drug use. There are people who just occasionally use drugs and alcohol and don't have problems with them. I don't get to meet those people, um, but they do (laughs) exist out there from what I've heard. So it's when it becomes a functional issue. You know, somebody's not sleeping. They're not able to work like they used to, you know, their interactions. And this is a big one we talk about with kids, especially is when you see a change in pattern and behavior, a change in functional status. I'll use like a teenager, you know, the stereotypical angsty teenager standard. They're snapping one minute, they're giving hugs the next if you're lucky. You know, that that can be the standard, but when is it not? You know, when that has gone on for two weeks without a break, when you haven't seen them eat or drink mm-hmm. anything, when, you know, their light's on all night and you know they're on their TV or their, their phone not sleeping. It's when there's a functional change and somebody's no longer able to do that function or they're calling in sick to work or they're not able to care for themselves. You notice they haven't showered, eaten, taken medication, stuff like that. Those are the big red flags that usually precede the crisis. And if we can get help during that precedent time, we may not need things like CIT hospitalizations, which carry risks and they take people away from where they want to be. And so if if there are ways of getting people help prior to that, we would be more than happy to do so. And we are. Oftentimes patients aren't aware of it or don't want to, or it's not that bad yet. And that's what I tell families is it really focus on the functional aspect. Maybe building on that a little bit. If I have a family member who is clearly in crisis and who needs help immediately, but I don't know who to turn to, who is my first phone call to? Call him. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think literally a lot of the time that's what happens. Yes. Um, I can I can tell you that you know when I, I said earlier that you know we were the first nine one one was the first person you know and we were the first people called and the last one anybody wanted showed up on the yeah. doorstep. I can credit that flip to a great degree with NAMI, the National Association for the Mentally Ill. They were our biggest supporters. They saw what we were doing, what we were trying to do. We invited them into the training, if nothing else, as an observer so that they could pass on to their families that it's okay to call the police. We trust them now. With the support of NAMI, they've said, call the police, ask for your CIT officer. There's a legal standard that we, from the law enforcement side, have to address. We can't just have a family member who goes, Junior's acting up, you know, or my husband's acting up, my wife's acting whoever it is. They're, they're acting up, I want them out. I, they need to get out. I don't care what you do. I don't care how you do it. I just want them out. We can't do that. It is, we just can't do that. We do have that strict legal boundaries that we're set by. But then understanding that, they will call us and we will go. And if they don't meet the criteria, we will let them know. But we will also suggest to them 
keep a notebook of, of these behaviors. If we start seeing a pattern of that they're decomping as they're going through, that's like you know sleeping longer, not eating, not bathing, all the things that Dr. Runyon mentioned. That's like okay, now we may have a basis for say grave disability, but you can't walk in on the first time meeting them and say. Yep, they are. Sometimes we can. I mean, sometimes we can see situations that are so drastic, that's because the family didn't recognize it in time, and now we are way off that cliff. But a lot of the times, we need to establish what's going on. But I, I think, literally, we're going to be the first people they call. We will come out. We will address what's going on. If its criteria is met, then we take them into Parkview on, on the 24-hour IDO, gives Dr. Runyon and his staff the opportunity to do their evaluation more in-depth. We're kind of like in the field triage. We look yeah. at it, we make the assessment. If they need more, then we get them where they can get more and better and appropriate care. And when I, I've taught some CIT courses, and I don't think I've done Fort Wayne's, but um, for Parkview and a few other areas, we, I, I tell the officers, I'm not asking you to make a diagnosis. Like, you know, that's our job. I'm not asking you to make, don't make a difficult decision. Your decision should be, can I take, should I take him to the hospital or not? And it, make the difficult decision us because we're trained to do that. That's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. So when in doubt, if possible, bring him in to let us have a look at him and, and let us make that call. So I think if there's any significant question, especially about safety, and, and we brought up safety quite a few times and calling the police with safety, I just want to point out people with mental illness are more likely to be the victims of crimes mm -hmm. as opposed to be the perpetrator of violent crimes. Although, unfortunately, sometimes those violent crimes are occurred to family members and the people who are asking for help and are trying to support them may be the target of that violence, but they're more likely to be the victims in regards to the patient. So if there's any question about safety, making sure somebody isn't going to be hurt or hurting themselves, police, if there is already an established relationship with a case manager or a physician or somebody like that, that, you know, hey, yeah, Dr. Runyon works with this person, it's, let's give them a call. For Parkview, there is a helpline, it's a 24-hour helpline, it's three. 373-7500. Again, 373-7500. And it's essentially a triage line. It's staffed 24-7 by a nurse or a case manager who basically answers the phone, listens to the situation, and is like, you should call 911 and get a police officer, or we'll call them for you. Or, okay, are you able to make it through tonight? Do you need to come to the hospital? Can you get a ride here? Oh, you have an appointment tomorrow, maybe. And so they basically will do a, a phone triage with whoever calls in about what should be the next step what options do we have? Can we get you an appointment to be seen tomorrow? Or do we need to bring you in the emergency room or call 911 and then try to help them with that through the process? So again, if it's a significant safety concern, make sure you're going through the police department to make sure that everybody's safe. But the helpline is also another definite resource that people can call to try to get immediate medical triage. And a lot of those calls end up coming through us. We've talked a lot uh, about how to get help for mentally ill folks, and, and that's it's incredibly important. And I think a lot of times uh, people that are living with someone who suffers from a mental illness get frustrated, they get tired trying to, to find help for the individual, and sometimes they feel like they're not getting anywhere. And then when they finally do get to a point to where a person's hospitalized, they think, okay, thank goodness, throw their hands up in the air, somebody else is taking care of the problem, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And and while I think that that is definitely a reaction that, that's appropriate and understandable, family members really need to, to fight that. And they need to recognize that when this individual comes back into their home, that their loved one needs support. 
They, they need the family to be there for them. They're not going to come back into the home and be fixed completely and we just forget about it. You, you've got to support them. You've got to be looking for situations in, in which there's a change in, in, in their behavior. You know, sometimes you, you don't know that family members aren't taking their medications or they're not going to their appointments and, and they need your support. They need your help and to hold them accountable in that. So, you know, once a loved one gets into treatment, that's not the time to give up and, and to walk away from it. Stay with them, continue to help and support them. Those are great words of advice to end on. Anybody who is listening today who needs help, I think heard something that they could put to good use. Judge Andrew Williams, Dr. Matthew Runyon, and Lieutenant Tony Mays of the Fort Wayne Police Department, thank you so much for being here. I know I appreciate it, and anybody who heard your great words of advice will appreciate it too. Thank you. Thank you. you. This has been In Session, an inside look at the Allen County, Indiana courts. You can find out more on this topic and others at allensuperiorcourt.us. Thanks for listening. The next episode's coming right up.